All right, fourth down. Dallas on the 18-yard line of Houston in the second overtime period can win the game if this field goal is good. The game is tied 17-17. Boston will hold in the 24. And watch it. The big rush is on. The kick is up. The kick is good. Dallas is the champion. Dallas wins it on a 24-yard field goal by Tommy Brooker. They had to go into the second overtime period to win it. They courageously held. Here's their coach, Hank Stram. Carried off the field, and this has got to be one of the greatest football games I've ever seen, Paul. That was about the wildest finish we'll ever see, and of course, Hank Stram is beside himself. I imagine Pop Ivey's trying to congratulate him out there, but he can't get near him because he's been carried away by his own players. This game actually was played 77 minutes and 54 seconds of playing time. The field goal came with 12 minutes and 6 seconds to go in the second overtime period. Dallas won the first half 17 to nothing. Houston won the second half 17 to nothing and ended up in a tie. They were scoreless in the first overtime period. And uh, Tommy Brooker booted the field. There's E.J. Holub, who played such a great defensive game for Dallas. Houston had its defensive heroes in their uh, second half. Their line was magnificent. And uh, we just beat the darkness here in Houston as Houston's reign as American League football champions has come to an end. They'd won it the first two years. In the third year of this young league, Dallas has won the championship, and right now let's go down to Jack Buck. We're in the playing field, as you know, and here's Hank Stram, the coach of the now champion Dallas Texans. And Hank, congratulations. Thank you very much, Jack. It's a great thrill, and I, I just can't compliment this squad enough to, to see the way they came back. They stayed in the ball game in the second half like they did and finally came back and won it. It was a great tribute, I think, to our squad, and uh, we're just as proud as can we that we can win the championship and bring it back to Dallas Texans. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. Hey, gang, how y'all doing? Uh, we are back again, despite all the odds against it, uh, for yet another fun-filled episode of Good Seats Still Available. Thank you so much for finding us and joining us uh, in our little proceedings each and every week into what used to be in professional sports. We're back into football, and it's the early 1960s. Uh, and the clip you just heard was from the AFL championship game of 1962. That was Kurt Gowdy calling the action for ABC Sports, a live and exclusive presentation, uh, and a game that was quite the thriller and the well-viewed uh, thriller at that between the Dallas Texans and the Houston Oilers uh, in the championship game, one in dramatic sudden death double overtime fashion uh by the uh, the dallas texans and uh jack buck uh the of course the father of today's uh, nfl and major league baseball uh, broadcaster on fox joe buck uh interviewing the uh, head coach of the team at the time the legendary and hall of famer he hank stram uh just after uh the dramatic win by the texans over the oilers in that 1962 game and a very interesting pivot that game uh, what came after that game and uh, what uh, the, the fans of America saw in the AFL. Uh, and uh, we're going to get into some of that with our guest this week, uh, John Eisenberg. Uh, he, the author of a book that you heard me tout on multiple episodes previously uh, in our uh, 
uh, promotion of our friends at Audible for the audiobook version of this book called 10 Gallon War, the NFL's Cowboys, the AFL's Texans, and the feud for Dallas's pro football future. Uh, it's a fascinating little journey and tale uh, into three years of overlap in the Dallas, Texas market uh, of two teams basically battling it out for pro football, which prior to 1960 wasn't even a thing. There was a brief spurt uh, of, uh, of the NFL uh, in the early 1950s uh, with the Dallas uh, Texans, uh, previously named franchise, uh, which was woeful. Uh, we'll hopefully d- dedicate and find a reason to dedicate an episode specifically to that little adventure. Uh, but uh, in essence, you had circa 1959, uh, a big market in Dallas, uh, the, the state of Texas for that matter, a huge hotbed of, of football and certainly at the collegiate uh, and certainly high school levels, uh, going from zero professional franchises in 1959 to two, two count them, uh, franchises in 1960. The uh, AFL, the uh, newly announced league at the time, uh, backed by uh, and uh, birthed uh, uh, by the from the mind of Lamar Hunt, who was uh, essentially uh, spurned by his efforts to uh, to get an expansion franchise in the National Football League for Dallas. Uh, so he said, well, screw it. Let's just build our own league. Thank you. And of course, we'll put a, a franchise in there from Dallas uh, as part of it. Uh, the NFL uh, did not sort of take that uh, sitting uh, lightly, shall we say. And uh, as we'll hear in our conversation with John Eisenberg, uh, quickly and reflexively decided to uh, put a franchise in Dallas for 1960, hastily arranged, I guess you could say. Uh, the team that be- later became the uh, the Cowboys. I think their original nickname was uh, going to be called the Steers uh, and then the Rangers. And then I guess they figured out that uh, the Rangers didn't make much sense either because there was a, uh, a minor league baseball team with that name. So let's call them the Cowboys. Um, and what had happened, it basically in 1960 through 1962, uh, they both shared the Cotton Bowl, if you can believe it. Uh, the NFL uh, coming in with uh, the Cowboys and the AFL, the brand new league with the Texans and and uh, it was messy. Uh, it wasn't necessarily pretty. Uh, I mean, look in 1960, uh, the Dallas Cowboys went 0-11 and one. That is one tie. Uh, the uh, Chiefs uh, did okay, uh, but you know by the end of this little period in 1962, the uh, Texans were riding high uh, as the AFL champions. But even that uh, was not enough to keep. Uh, two teams flourishing in the Dallas market. And we're going to get into why the Texans ultimately left for Kansas City, uh, taking that AFL franchise there, and what uh, the Cowboys basically uh, wound up becoming uh, in the years that followed. And I think you're going to find that uh, the story was really a success on both fronts because uh, both teams, franchises, uh, leagues uh, wound up being the big winners. But uh, in this early period of the 1960s, uh, the uh, Dallas Texans of the AFL and the Dallas Cowboys of the NFL were battling it out at the Cotton Bowl. And uh, that's our chat this week with our guest, John Eisenberg. Uh, It's a very interesting one. I'm not from Dallas. I'm not from Texas, uh, but it's very interesting and very intriguing. And uh, you're going to learn a lot, as I did and often do in these chats. Uh, Coming up in a couple of seconds, a couple of promo items. Let's get those out of the way, shall we? OldSchoolShirts.com. Visit there early and often. OldSchoolShirts.com, the place to find. The best and high quality logo branded T-shirts uh, that you're going to find anywhere on the Internet. Uh, they're based in Cincinnati. Uh, they uh, come to you with love and uh, and passion uh, and uh, high quality uh, all around. And uh, when you use the promo code good seats, 
at checkout, you're going to get 10% all of all of your purchases at oldschoolshirts.com. There, uh, there's an AFL t-shirt there, a nice distressed looking shirt there. You can uh, memorialize your love for this episode by buying that shirt. And of course, using that promo code GOODSEATS. Uh, but there's a whole bunch of other stuff there, too. You're going to find great stuff, not only from sports teams and leagues, but uh, malls and uh, radio stations and uh, all kinds of other things, amusement parks, you name it, uh, that uh, will just uh, bring back some good memories. And uh, why not own a piece of and uh, some uh, ensure some of those uh, those memories last uh, with the T-shirts uh, that you're wearing at OldSchoolShirts.com. Promo code GOODSEATS for 10% off. Uh, also, SportsHistoryCollectibles.com. Uh, use a promo code there at SportsHistoryCollectibles.com. That promo code is good seats and get 15% off all of your purchases there. And that's memorabilia uh, front and center. Uh, yeah, occasionally you'll find a, a T-shirt or a clothing item, but uh, more uh, often you're going to find things like pennants and T-shirts. Uh, excuse me, T-shirts. I just said you're going to find them once in a while there. You're going to find pennants and buttons and uh, 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 media guides and programs and uh, you know, all kinds of stuff from the teams and leagues that uh, you may remember, but for whatever reasons aren't around anymore. And uh, when you find something you love, you just got to have and they're putting new stuff up there just about every week. Uh, make sure that you use the promo code good seats uh, for 15 percent. All of your purchases there. That's sportshistorycollectibles.com. And last but certainly not least, uh, our relatively new sponsors at 503 Sports. The king of throwbacks, they and we call them 503 Sports, and you can find them at 503-sports.com or 503-sports.com. Pick your pleasure. Uh, and uh, there you're going to find not only high-quality T-shirts with logos, et cetera, but you're going to find uh, high-quality uh, and uh, beautifully crafted uh, throwback uniforms from uh, teams and leagues that no longer with us. Uh, you know, all kinds of leagues like the USFL and the XFL and the World League of American Football. There's some baseball stuff there. And there's uh, more leagues and teams and uh, uh, and franchise memories to come uh, from 503 Sports, the king of throwbacks. And uh, when you use that promo code uh, SEATS uh, at checkout, uh, you're going to get 10% all of all of your purchases there. And again, that's 503-sports.com. Use the promo code SEATS and get 10% off all of your purchases there as well. And uh, we want to thank each and every one of those sponsors uh, and your support of those sponsors. And again, of course, when you uh, go to any of them and use those promo codes and stuff, you're going to give our, our show a little bit of love and help us out and keep the lights and uh, on and uh, uh, our, uh, our bandwidth paid for and all that kind of stuff because we've got so many great stories that we want to share with you. Uh, and we got to keep doing that uh, uh, with a little bit of help from uh, from you uh, by uh, patronizing, if you will, our sponsors. And we appreciate that and them very much. Uh, and uh, our uh, thanks in advance for doing so. All right. Let's uh, skate nicely and smoothly over to our uh, our fun chat uh, with John Eisenberg. He the author of Ten Gallon War. And uh, we're going to get into it. The, uh, the those first early years of the early 60s with between. Uh, the battle that is between the uh, Dallas Cowboys of the NFL, the uh, Texans of the AFL, and uh, what transpired in those early years uh, and pro football's future in Dallas that came out of that. Coming right up. Well, we're recording this episode uh, the weekend of the uh, 50th anniversary of the North American Soccer League, which they are celebrating uh, as part of the uh, the reopening of the National Soccer Hall of Fame in, in Frisco, Texas, uh, this weekend. Uh, I had hoped to, I had hoped to be there, but uh, we've already interviewed a whole ton of folks and, and Hall of Famers, both 
uh, previously inducted, as well as uh, uh, literally this weekend, J.P. Della Camera, the broadcaster, being uh, inducted into the uh, on the, the media side of things. So, yeah, but but l- maybe we can start there because. Um, well, uh, you know, obviously Lamar Hunt, right? Uh, very much a concentric figure uh, in both the Dallas Tornado yeah. and uh, the AFL, and, and maybe some of the stories that we're going to talk about here. Actually, before we get there, though, why don't you uh, regale our audience a bit with uh, your background, uh, sort of where you uh, emanate from, and how you uh, stumbled into this particular topic of uh, Dallas pro football in the early 1960s in the book. Well, I lived Dallas football in the early 1960s. That's why, I mean, there was, this was always a story that, that interested me. I mean, I'm, I'm a native Texan. I grew up, I was born in Dallas in the late fifties and, and grew up there. And, uh, so, I mean, and, and, uh, actually had written an earlier book, uh, Cotton Bowl Days on, uh, sort of growing up as a, as a fan of the Cowboys in the sixties, long before they were America's team, when they were playing, in the cotton bowl. And, uh, you know, uh, I mean, I sort of grew up along with Dallas and along with the Cowboys. They were all three of us sort of, sort of started young and, and grew up. And so that was a, that was a, that was a, a book that was close to my heart. One of my first ones. And so, uh, I grew up there and I went to school there and I lived there until I was 18 and went off to college. And, um, yeah, in Philadelphia at the University of Pennsylvania, but uh, and I've lived in Baltimore since uh, I was 27 years old, which is a, a long time ago. I've been in Baltimore 30 something years working at newspapers. But uh, anybody that's born and raised in Texas sort of still considers themselves a Texan, and I am definitely that. Uh, it it uh, you can hear it in my voice, no doubt. And uh, so that's for better or worse, where where my sort of heart is. And so any early Texas football story is interesting to me. And this one was a natural. So uh, let's uh, let's circle maybe around some of this. Right. So circa where, you know, let's dial the, the, the way back machine to the uh, late 1950s. And there's a bunch of things going on. And we, we've touched a little bit on sort of the maturation, I guess, or the solidification of the NFL during the decade of the 50s. But uh, it as we've seen before and after, uh, uh, the um, you know the there are a lot of people who were not sort of necessarily thinking that uh, pro football had fully satiated the uh, the appetite of the uh, of the American uh, populace across the country. Maybe a little bit of background or or setup, I guess, of pro football circa late fifties and sort of the things that were stirring both NFL and uh, with a particular person who was uh, spurned by said professional league yes well uh, pro football had had gotten to be very popular uh, by the late 50s it had sort of outgrown it's it's a, a very difficult adolescence that lasted for many years when it was a, a third-rate sport really a failing enterprise for many for several decades and uh, by the 50s was much more popular television had a lot to do with that the changing of the rules and, and i mean there's uh, many many factors had to do with why the nfl was coming of age uh, in the late fifties, but, uh, the people that ran the league were, were very cautious about, uh, finally, I mean, they had lived for years with virtually no money on the table, just a little, uh, enough to get by. No one was getting rich. And then suddenly, uh, television uh, came in and there was money on the table for the first time and they were making some money. 
And frankly, they didn't want to carve it up any farther than it was. I mean, they, they, they liked having a nice little league and uh, whatever money was coming in, uh, they were finally making some. And so if they took on many, many more partners, uh, they wouldn't make as much. So they were very, very hesitant to expand. And actually the same thing was happening in baseball. And so, uh, Congress was sniffing around uh, you know, with antitrust exemptions and was investigating why p- the pro sports leagues were not expanding. It, it seemed to be a real problem. And these leagues, I think, were aware that uh, the time was coming, but they were putting it off as long as they could. And so they didn't want to, the NFL specifically did not want to bring a team to Dallas. Uh, they didn't want to bring football to Texas, even though there was a lot of money there. Uh, they had put a team there in the early 50s for one year. It flopped. Dallas in the early 50s was not ready for an integrated uh, football team uh, of any kind to play. And it was a terrible team. It lasted one year and vanished. So they were a little cautious about Dallas to begin with uh, for that reason. But uh, Lamar Hunt was a, a son of a, an oil man, really a son of the oil man, H.L. Hunt, who was probably the richest man in America at that time. And uh, Lamar just loved it. He didn't want to get into the oil business. He just liked sports. And he wanted to bring a, a, an NFL team to Dallas. He tried to buy the Cardinals. He t- did all that he could. And basically the NFL, the guys, George Callis and Burt Bell, these guys all old enough to be his dad. They just basically patted him on the head and told him to go away. And so Lamar was spurned by the NFL uh, and so he decided to start his own league, uh, very, very simply. And, and, uh, that is where it, it came. That is where the, the root of the story was, was Lamar Hunt, uh, basically being blown off by the NFL and deciding, well, there are so many places that want in now so many cities, Dallas, Houston, lots of different places that didn't have pro football. Uh, and, you know, he was the one that the light bulb came on. I think the appetite is there, and I'm going to go forward with this. Yeah, and uh, that's a, a door opener that uh, we had with um, uh, Michael McCambridge, uh, the uh, the author of, the, the I think, the seminal biography of, of Lamar Hunt uh, in one of our earliest uh, of episodes. And uh, Mr. Hunt, of course, continues to sort of uh, – become almost one of the uh, uh, patron saints or if not uh, sort of, uh, uh, you know, the face on the uh, Mount Rushmore, I guess, of the uh, defunct and forgotten and, uh, you know, but yet uh, important uh, uh, stories around uh, sort of this genre that we that we focus on. Maybe um, so what, you know, and we, we've we've chatted about this a little bit in the past, but what was the original intention of Hunt's literally just, quote unquote, to get a franchise for the NFL in Dallas, or did he? Did you think he, based on your research, have any bigger ambitions in mind, or was that really the impetus? No, the the impetus I firmly believe was just to get a team in Dallas. He wanted to he wanted to get in the NFL, and it just wasn't going to happen. They weren't going to do it, and so uh, uh, the, that to me was was very clear. I mean, I don't think he all along thought that he wanted to start a league. He was 26 years old, a couple of years out of SMU and, uh, you know, Texans think big, but, uh, I don't think that that was, he just, he's a sports loving guy. I knew him. Uh, I covered him in the beginning of my newspaper career. 
in Dallas, and he was a sports-loving guy. And uh, at, at that point in his life, he just wanted a football team. And so when the NFL wouldn't give him one, he said, well, I'll have my team and I'm just going to have to start a league. I mean, it was as simple as that. And he was pretty naive, admittedly. He thought, well, we're not really going to compete with the NFL. We can get along with the NFL. We're just going to have some different cities. And I don't know whether we'll really compete at all. You know, he had no idea. And as he admitted later, probably the most naive thought in the history of pro sports that the NFL wouldn't take this challenge seriously because they knew that, uh, you know, anybody with that much money uh, starting a pro football league was, was, could be a challenge. And of course proved to be an incredible challenge, the AFL and uh, wound up bringing the NFL to their knees in some respects and, you know, forcing a merger. All right, so let's let's talk about sort of those uh, those months before the launch of the AFL because those are pretty crucial in uh, the formation not only of the, of the league but but specifically uh, this Dallas franchise. And uh, interestingly, right, some of the responses and uh, uh, reactions to the NF- by the NFL uh, as this stuff was getting going, in particular with with the Dallas market in play. You want to get us a little bit of, of background on that. Well, what happened, of course, is in hindsight, pretty hilarious, but uh, you, you've got uh, the, the George Hallis, Burt Bell faction that doesn't want to expand and want any part to, anything to do with Dallas. And then Lamar Hunt starts this league. They, they, they you know, we're going to have a team. We're going to have a league. We're going to have a team. There's going to be one in Dallas. And they start putting it together. And then so suddenly, not surprisingly, Hallis has a, a abrupt change of heart and says, oh, okay, well, uh, there's going to be a team there. Actually, uh, we want a team. We're going to put a team in Dallas too. They actually tried to buy Lamar off and say, you can bring a team to Dallas. You can, if you curtail your plans to start the AFL, you can have the team in Dallas. And uh, it, it was too late, their offer. Lamar had already found some, uh, some, some people to own teams. Baron Hilton uh, had a, you know, a young guy, uh, uh, you know, the son of the hotel guy was going to start a team in Los Angeles. And he had found some partners. So he was going ahead with his league. So they were going to have a team. And then the NFL said, well, we're going to they, – they suddenly realized Dallas, uh, an oil town where there was money and a, a – a football-loving town. They didn't want to just give that market to the AFL, so they put a team in there, an expansion team. They found another owner, uh, Clint Murkison, who uh, was uh, another oil guy, uh, every bit as rich as Lamar Hunt probably, and they put the team. He became the owner of an expansion team in Dallas. They did not want to cede the market to Lamar Hunt. So uh, from no teams – to two teams in Dallas in a matter of months. Uh, and the, the most of them, uh, both of them had most of 1960 to sort of get their acts together before kicking off that fall at the same time. Uh, so it was just a unique set of circumstances that came about strictly because the NFL uh, for after holding off expansion for years and years, suddenly didn't want to give away a lucrative market to uh, to this rival league and thought, well, if we can knock off, uh, you know, Hunt's putting this league together, if we can knock off his his team, 
uh, maybe we'll knock off the whole league. So it was sort of a, a distillation of the entire developing AFL-NFL rivalry. Well, let's let's jump in a little bit into each of these teams' uh, early formative months before uh, hitting the field. Maybe we could start with the actual with the Cowboys, right? Which was the NFL's response, but they were not "quote unquote" the Cowboys uh, once this change of heart sort of was announced. Uh, and it's some really interesting. Some really interesting uh, 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 shenanigans and uh, and background, which uh, which is brand new to me. And, and again, this is my naivete uh, around, I guess, sort of maybe part of Hallis's and, and the NFL's uh, thinking around their, quote unquote, ownership of the South, if you will, via the Washington Redskins and maybe how a Dallas franchise would uh, maybe be perceived in the AFL a threat to that sort of Southern stronghold. Well, Yes, I mean, George Preston Marshall and the Redskins had dominated the South for years. They were the southernmost team in the NFL, and, and he, George Marshall had made a lot of money off of that, uh, bringing in Southern players. Of course, he was just an unbelievable racist, and, and, and they had to, the federal government had to get involved for him to integrate the Redskins. And so he was fine with having an all-white team and, and uh, you know, a Southern players from Southern universities. And so here comes Dallas uh, into the market, into the league, and Marshall was against it. He was totally against it. But uh, Clint Merkerson, who was buying the team or who was starting the team, was a very was a prankster. That's the only way to put it. A very wealthy prankster, but he had a very sort of wry sense of humor, and he bought the rights to George Marshall's beloved fighting, you know, the the fight song for the Redskins, "Hail to the Redskins." He bought the rights, Murkison did. And so Marshall, uh, and so he says to George Marshall, uh, if, if, if you don't support my team, I'm not going to give you your rights back. I'm going to keep the rights to this song. And, and so that bought Marshall's support. And that was the final uh, straw that enabled the, the league to approve the franchise that would kick off in Dallas. And so there was all sorts of shenanigans like that going on. Uh, that of course you can never imagine happening in football today, but uh, they they just did what they could, uh, you know, to find players. Uh, I mean, the, the, it was it was really the bottom of the barrel. They didn't get much from an expansion draft, uh, and the Cowboys. I mean, the, the, every, both teams were out just looking around. Anybody that could basically walk, uh, they were looking for players uh, to put this team together. The NFL hadn't had an expansion team in really ever. And, and so uh, this was this was a, a new thing for them. So uh, they were just making it up as they went along. Why do you think uh, Murchison uh, didn't maybe uh, connect with Hunt, given that Hunt had already kind of sort of put in motion this new league with a Dallas franchise there versus hijacking, I guess, one of the major owners of the NFL uh, to achieve a, an NFL expansion franchise, which apparently wasn't even on the drawing board? Well, they, they knew each other. They were in the same line of work. Uh, they were friends. They did not. Uh, Lamar and Clint Murkison did not have any problems personally. Uh, they kind of laughed at, laughed about the situation. Uh, I guess that's what happens when you just have a trillion dollars, right? I mean, you can. Uh, uh, I mean, they, they they weren't too upset about it personally. But uh, and I think they did talk about it. Murkison did bring it up, but it was far too late. Uh, Lamar had decided that he was going forward with this AFL. Uh, once they'd had some organizational meetings and, and he had some partners, as I said, and he had sort of announced a plan they're going forward, he wasn't going to abandon it. So 
uh, th- there was no way uh, that he was going to be talked into getting into the NFL. He, he, you know, suddenly he was set up on the opposite of the line of scrimmage, you know, the other side of the line of scrimmage from the NFL. And uh, there was no going back. All right. And one last question on this before we sort of get into how maybe even the, the Cowboys were even named. Um, how much, so Marshall, right, obviously being entwined in this um, uh, amazingly uh, and, and hard to believe story circulating around a fight song, uh, literally as the lever of negotiation, if you will. Um, how much of, do you think uh, the Marshall situation with the song uh, influenced Hallis and or the other, like I'm trying to figure out, I guess, sort of which came, who came first, I guess, into changing the mindset of the NFL regarding expansion and Dallas in particular. Uh, Marshall was a holdout. Mar- the Marshall thing was not, that was the last straw. Uh, the Marshall situation, uh, the, the, the people that, um, George Marshall uh, was right with Hallis for many years as one of the key figures in the league, but his power was eroding at that point. And it was eroding. He was becoming an embarrassment to the league because of his sort of the, the, the all white Redskins and uh, the network television uh, people were sniffing around the league and, and they knew they couldn't put a segregated product, uh, you know, a segregated team on. And, and, and the league was really trying to figure out how in the world uh, can we get around this with this really one of our pioneers, but he's got this fatal flaw. And so uh, that was that was the last straw. I mean, I mean, Hallis and those guys wanted it, and so it was going to happen. Uh, but uh, to to sort of uh, achieve uh, a unified stance uh, and, and to get the necessary vote, you know, the final vote, uh, that you know, that's where the fight song came in. But one way, George. Hallis ran the National Football League, and he was ready to expand. They they called it an expansion committee. He was the expansion committee. Uh, George Hallis ran the National Football League. He was never commissioner, and he was orchestrating. The, he was pulling the puppet strings totally on this situation, and it, he would have made it happen. Uh, the fight song just made it easier. All right, we'll get to the uh, Dallas AFL situation in a second, but uh, any uh, insight background into the uh, the naming of this NFL uh, franchise, the Cowboys? It wasn't the uh, original name, I guess, from what I can tell when it was formed. Well, they were going to call them the Rangers. They were going to call them the Rangers, uh, and that was the name of a minor league baseball team that played there. And so they decided, well, uh, that would not, uh, that would not fly. I mean, it was going to be confusing. So we needed to come up with a different name. So Tex Schramm came up with it, uh, who had been named the general manager, very, very influential key figure in the story of the, the beginning of the Cowboys and the long life, the success of the Cowboys is Tex Schramm. Their general manager would come from the LA Rams. And so, it, it was his name. He came up with it, and uh, it, you know, it went forward from there. Well, it's really funny. Whenever you look back at a lot of this football history, the the amount of time given to these nicknames, now iconic nicknames, is not very long. They they were they they just kind of thought, well, that sounds like a good name, so uh, they went with it. It 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 just uh, was not given the. You know, today you have a, a thousand. Uh, you know, you, you, you bring in focus groups and you have branding questions and it just goes, it, it's a year of work to decide what you're going to call yourself. 
that was not the case back then. It was like, well, that sounds pretty good, so we'll go with that. And so that's pretty much how the Cowboys were named. Well, let's uh, let's use that as a uh, as a segue point to what was going on <clears throat> on the other side of the fence with uh, with the Dallas AFL franchise, uh, nicknamed, I guess, the uh, the Texans. I don't know if that was the original name. Maybe not even original at that. Uh, that uh, I'm having trouble remembering whether that was the original name. Uh, I think. Uh, you know, Lamar came from, uh, I can't remember whether that was the case or not, but uh, Lamar uh, came from college background. You know, he was a, like all people down there. He loved uh, uh, college football and, and uh, he probably thought about calling them the Mustangs, like his beloved SMU where he had played. It was a third stringer, but uh, no, I, I think, and I think he just decided that would be uh you know, again, not too much thought given to it, but uh, he was uh, very much, uh, uh, you know, a loyal Texan. And uh, as as many native Texans are, I can speak from experience. So uh, he just went with that. I don't think it was real complicated. Yeah. Well, it's also interesting, too, because uh, in a couple of years when uh, it, they decide to, to move, uh, and maybe we could talk about this now since we're talking about names and, and, and the, the logos associated. Uh, my understanding, I think this is from... Uh, our chat uh, about uh, Hunt's life with uh, with Michael McCambridge uh, a number of gee almost a year ago now. Um, he almost went, I, I, my understanding is he wanted to take the Texans name with him when he went to Kansas City, uh, which doesn't that is correct. Kind of any well thought plan does it? <laughs> that is correct. He had to be talked out of it. Uh, yes, I mean they were. He was so burned with you know burned by by seeding Dallas. It was his decision, but uh, to give up Dallas, yeah, it was like, well, I'm going to, you know, this will show him. I'm going to keep the damn nickname. And uh, he was, he had to be talked out of it. He wasn't even 30 years old yet. So he, he had, he had to be talked out of it. The Kansas City Texans. I mean, can you imagine? Uh, <laughs> it would have been interesting. Right, I went, probably would have been up there, right, with the Utah Jazz. Uh, and some other <laughs> right. that sort of have come along for the ride that make no sense. The L.A. Dodgers, right? I mean, these are, these don't have any sort of. They don't make any sense, right? But um, uh, it's, it's, it's an interesting. <laughs> so, all right. So let's let's talk about, um, I guess, the formation of these teams. You mentioned uh, Tech Schramm, obviously a legendary figure to come in in Cowboys uh, history and success and innovation. Uh, obviously, you've got Hunt uh, hiring and looking for people. Um, maybe a little bit of insight into uh, how their the team sort of came into play, and in particular, uh, what I find obviously in hindsight to be an oddity. Uh, both teams circling around the same playing venue in the Cotton Bowl. That seems odd. Well, the Cotton Bowl was the the, the major venue in Dallas. It was the really the only place to play, uh, and it was a grand football theater in 1959 and 1960. They had there were four New Year's Day bowls, uh, college football bowls, and it was one of them. And uh, since the 1930s, had staged a New Year's Day game, had staged every year the Texas-Oklahoma game, uh, neutral site, just a, a huge cultural event in the southwest part of the country. And so it was, it, was a, it, was, it was a grand theater. It was like Broadway when it came to football. And, uh, of course, in reality, I mean, we, we think of stadiums so differently today. In reality, it was just a big concrete terrain. You know, there were no luxury boxes. There was no nothing fancy. It had a couple scoreboards. 
and uh, it was it was it was because of the teams that played in it and the games that that made it famous. It wasn't in a, in and of itself, in, you know, any sort of adornments or anything that that made it special that we would think of today. But uh, that was where you had to play, and so actually, the fact that they both had the dates. I mean, that they both wanted to play there was uh, immediately uh, a clash because Lamar Hunt went and grabbed all the Sunday. Uh, he, he he formed his team first, and he grabbed the, the rights to the Sunday afternoon uh, uh, slot, time slot for, for home games. So that forced the Cowboys to play some of their earliest games, their first games on Friday nights, on Saturday nights. And uh, it was uh, – it, it was it, I mean, they didn't even think about that. Uh, but by the time the Cowboys were up and running in reaction to Lamar's team, Lamar had taken the Sunday afternoon time slot. So they, they shared it. Uh, so when, when one uh, team would play, uh, the other was on the road, uh, you know, oftentimes, I mean, the Cowboys were either on the road or playing on, on a weird time, Friday night or Saturday night. But it, in the long run, they both uh, alternated, basically alternated Sunday afternoons. And so you could sort of, you could hit, you could hold it up to the light and see how they were doing against each other from one Sunday to the next. What, what did either team have? Well, so it sounds like that, that the, the Chiefs, <laughs> not yet, the Texans had uh, a bit of an edge, I guess, when it came to uh, rights associated with, I mean, I'm guessing both were lessors, right? Or lessees of the um of the the stadium, right? They were neither of them had yes. ownership or or control. But it sounds oh, like no. it sounds like Hunt and the Texans had a bit of an edge, I guess maybe. And that's interesting because you'd think with the the establishment of the NFL, with the long more the more established NFL, uh, there might be a bit more. Um, I guess it, it's money talks, right? And maybe a negotiating skill to kind of get that edge. Yeah. Well, and timing. They were they were just together first, and they went and grabbed him. Lamar was smart. He went and got him. Uh, it would not always be the case. Uh, 61 and 62, it was much more equal. But in, in the beginning, uh, Lamar did beat them to the punch with that. And uh, so he did have that edge. But, uh, no, they, they were definitely just leasing. And, and you know, that was, uh, I mean, there was no ownership stake at all. It was, it's actually in uh, the State Fair of Texas uh, Fairgrounds is where the stadium is. Uh, and, and so, uh, they, they both put the, they both began preparing their teams in the, in the spring and summer and early fall of 1960, knowing they would be, uh, kicking off in the same, not only in the same city, but in the same stadium. So it was a, just the rarest of situations. Before we get to their sort of head to head, uh, uh, performances on the field, as well as at the gate and stuff, um, how about some uh, some insight into uh, how they were preparing their organizations? I mean, my understanding is that that Hunt very much had uh, some top notch talent in mind, including in particular uh, uh, Bud Wilkinson uh, of Oklahoma and uh, a young defensive assistant at the Giants by the name of Tom Landry. Uh, but it seems like he was rebuffed by both of those. And we'll talk about uh, that second gentleman in a second. But um Maybe a little sense of sort of how he and um, and Dan Klosterman, right, who's a big figure of the uh, of the Texans, right, and putting these uh, pieces together before getting on the field. Yes, he was uh, brought in. Klosterman was a very very sharp guy and and uh, good at finding players. He was an early sort of talent scout. 
uh, wound up being, had a long career. It was a former college quarterback, wound up having a long career in the NFL uh, or, in, or, in, or in, in, in pro football. And uh, he, he really helped. I mean, there's no, no doubt something we'll get into. I mean, the Texans, I think, had better players uh, early on, uh, a lot of them. And uh, Klosterman, really good at finding guys, a good judge of talent. And uh, they, the Texans brought in Hank Stram as their coach had been a, it was totally obscure, uh, had been an assistant coach. Uh, he was an assistant coach at the University of Miami uh, that time. And uh, Lamar had run across him and, and was impressed by him and had been coached by him briefly at SMU and, uh, and just was impressed with his approach, offensive approach. So he wound up going uh, that way after he was unable to get some of the higher names like Bud Wilkinson, who was probably the college coach at that point, uh, didn't want to go with the new league and, and nor did Tom Landry want to go with the new league. Uh, Lamar went and talked to him uh, in New York and uh, the meeting didn't last long uh, because uh, the Cowboys had already sort of circled uh, Landry as their guy and uh, it, it was going to happen. And so that you know, it, it had not happened yet, and but it was going to happen. And so uh, Lamar just realized, well, you know, I'm going to have to go in a different direction. It seems, too, that um, they uh, uh, not only that, but also had um, a pretty decent uh, read and maybe even strategy on uh, kind of Texas connections, like for some of the players, you know, maybe to sort of help identify better with uh, uh, not only a new league, but a new team in a new market uh, with some uh, some quality folks from, uh, you know, the Baylors and the TCUs and the North Texases of the world, no? Yeah, so and they were, of course, so they wanted Bob Lilly, who wound up uh, playing with the Cowboys with the TCU. But Lamar definitely had that feeling. We have to get local players because the Cowboys had the same thought. And uh, they wound up with Don Meredith, who had gone to SMU, you know, was a Texan, was their quarterback. Uh, but, yes, uh, the, both had the same thought. Uh, college football had been popular in Texas for decades. We need to start out with that attachments as much as we can. So Cotton Davidson, uh, you know, was a Baylor quarterback. Uh, the biggest one that they came up with uh, was Abner Haynes, was a, a halfback, uh, African-American halfback uh, from North Texas State. In Denton, Texas, about 30 miles north of Dallas, it was a Dallas product. He'd gone to, to uh, you know, of course, segregated school and then had uh, gone to North Texas and set records uh, as, a, as a halfback there. So and Abner Haynes wound up being just an excellent player for the, uh, you know, the Dallas Texans in 1960, 61 and 62. And he was local. He had grown up really almost literally in the shadow of Cotton Bowl. So that was a local player. And uh, they were very good at that. There were several players from SMU, TCU. That both teams were looking to to get as many guys like that as they could. Yeah, and the AFL, of course, being a brand new league, had a draft uh, uh, in place as well, right? Arguably, you know, brand new and not necessarily going to be taken maybe by certain players as seriously as that of the established NFL. But my suspicion is that the the fact that there was a draft infrastructure for the league itself also aided at least uh, a, a pipeline of players to at least look at for this brand new franchise. Yes. It created a pool of players to look at. I think also it was really loose 
uh, loose framework. If if the if somebody had drafted, I, I can't think of an example offhand, but if, if uh, somebody say the Denver Broncos had drafted a player from Texas and and he didn't want to play in Denver, but he wanted to play in the AFL, they would arrange a trade. And they would just, whatever, here's a bag of balls and a sandwich and maybe next year's 12th round draft pick for the rise to this player uh, just, just to make that work. And the AFL was certainly going to do that. They were just trying, anybody that wanted to play in the AFL, they were going to figure out a way to get him into the league, no matter who had his rights. It was a, it was a pretty loose situation. Yeah, we touched on that a little bit with uh, a previous episode a couple of weeks ago with uh, Ron McDole, uh, who you know played with yeah. Buffalo Bills and the Washington Redskins. But uh, he was one of that sort of first class in 1959-60 or so that uh, sort of uh, got the benefit of being drafted by both now two leagues. Um, and he kind of also described it a bit as, um, uh, you know, the idea of, uh, not only uh, sort of uh, being drafted, but I think he even went so far as to say that, uh, uh, which I thought was interesting and, and maybe not surprising, that uh, in his, from his recollection and his understanding, that um, not necessarily that college coaches were on the payroll of either of these two leagues, but uh, there was certainly um, some entrenched uh, <laughs> greasing of palms, shall we say, to uh, ensure uh, some uh, surfacing of talent, I guess, for both of these leagues, maybe hastened by the AFL's arrival. Yes, there was uh, nobody was above anything like that. If you, uh, yes, if a certain coach had, uh, I don't, I don't know of any specific examples, but uh, they, they were not above doing anything to, you know, if they could pay a coach to, to at uh, a school to direct uh, one of their players or suggested my work, uh, they they were going to do that. Uh, the men starting the NFL did have some money. They, there were some wealthy people there, and so they, they were not above doing stuff like that. Uh, that. That's funny to hear that story. But, yeah, by any means, whatever it may be, I mean, uh, there there was uh, some stories of, of course, you know, if the AFL had the, the ends on uh, a player, you know, they would kidnap him maybe even keep him away from uh, the NFL uh, scouts trying to sign him uh, in in order to get his name on a contract. Uh, There there were all sorts of shenanigans. It was really the Wild West. All right, we're going to take a quick little pause here. we got to pay some bills. And uh, look, uh, nobody you know, likes living in the past. Uh, We do revel in it, certainly, when this little show. Uh, And look, we certainly enjoy going back and remembering teams and leagues that don't exist anymore because they're just tremendous stories and and history there. And we don't want to forget those. But, you know, we can't always live uh, in those times. We can't uh, sort of just roll around in nostalgia all day. We wouldn't get anything done in our lives now, would we? Uh, And in the realm of sports, come on, look, you know, uh, there's uh, so much going on. There's just a, a plethora of of games and uh, events to watch and to follow and fantasy stuff and all that kind of stuff. And look, you know, we get all excited about that stuff and we think we have a sense that uh, we're going to know who's going to win some of those games. When you have that sense, there's no better place to try your luck, shall we say, than by going to our friends, our new friends at MyBookie. Uh, Their website's mybookie.ag and they're probably one of the best, if not the best, online betting sites you're going to find. Uh, out there and, and well-timed, shall we say, right, for the uh, the college and pro football seasons uh, that are upon us. And, uh, of course, we have an incentive for you to give them a try. And that's uh, the promo code SEATS. Use that promo code SEATS at mybookie.ag. 
and they're going to match your initial deposit dollar for dollar all the way up to a thousand bucks. Yep, that basically means they're going to double uh, the amount you put in up to a thousand dollars by using that promo code SEATS. And that's MyBookie, MyBookie.ag. That's the specific URL to go to. And uh, again, you can choose from, uh, it's not just football, right? Obviously, football is a big time uh, uh, event for uh, for your, your betting purposes. But uh, there's just about any sport under the sun uh, that MyBookie supports. That's uh, teams and leagues on the domestic front, uh, internationally. Uh, you can bet on fantasy uh, uh, points and spreads. Uh, you can even bet in-game during the process of, uh, of the actual match. Uh, it's all there for you at MyBookie, mybookie.ag. And again, use that promo code SEATS, and they're going to match your initial deposit dollar for dollar all the way up to 1000 bucks. Give them a try. MyBookie, that's mybookie.ag. We thank them for their support of the show, and uh, we wish you the best of luck, of course, in all your betting endeavors. Uh, and wish us luck as we continue our conversation right now. How much was Hunt involved in the uh, the building of the Texans, or was he pretty much just kind of you know focused on the league and stuff? Because obviously the AFL, well, so obviously the, the the AFL had its headquarters in Dallas. Not surprisingly, uh, I'm just wondering how hands on uh, Hunt was and or some of the other people sort of involved. I mean, Jack Stedman, which was one of uh, who was one of his, uh, I guess, right hand men in, in in all of his sort of sports endeavors. Uh, sort of came into the mix as well. Uh, was he looking for quality people to kind of run it that he could trust, or yeah. or or did he have a hand in certain decisions and and a little you know, uh, or was he kind of more focused on the league? More focused on the league, uh, I think. And you no, know, he he tried to sign. He thought he was going to get Don Meredith. He was Lamar was an SMU guy. Don Meredith was an SMU guy, and he thought he would get Meredith, and he failed. And so I think he realized at that point, I maybe should not be involved in this. Uh, this is not my strength. And so he let the football people handle it. And that's how he would run his team, uh, you know, until the day he died. He was not uh, a hands-on owner uh, in the football operation. All right. So let's let's uh, uh, return back to now the uh, the newly named or solidified name of the Cowboys. Um, and, and maybe a good hook there is, again, it's my understanding that uh, correct me if I'm wrong and or, you know, reorient me on this, that maybe in the haste, let's call it haste, of getting this franchise named and uh, and, and up and running. Uh, do I have this correct in that the Cowboys did not have the benefit of uh, being part of the NFL's draft mechanism uh, circa 5960? That's right. They did not have a draft. Why was that? Uh, well, it happened too late. It just happened after, actually, the draft back then was not in the spring. Uh, it was in the winter, and it had come along too late. They, 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 they really hustled the, the Cowboys into existence, uh, and they were, um, they were uh, approved in January, I believe, uh, of 1960. Uh, and uh, so uh, I believe it was at the same owners meeting where Pete Roselle was named uh, commissioner, but um, they, uh, so they just came along too late. I mean, they just, this is how, how fly by night the NFL got the Cowboys up and running. 
So there was no draft. They did have an expansion draft, but not a college draft. And it was a real setback for them. Well, uh, that's saying something, right? Because, uh, well, okay, so then how did they get players? What what, what was their source, their pipeline? Uh, And and let's talk about Landry, because Landry, while being romanced, I guess, by by Hunt, uh, somehow became uh, uh, entranced, I guess, enough to jump into this... uh, I don't know, shaky situation, albeit in the NFL, by becoming the head coach of the Cowboys. Yes, I mean, th- those were separate. I mean, Landry, Schramm, uh, I mean, they, they, they got Schramm, and then Schramm got Landry. The Cowboys were always a top-down organization. Murkison hired a general manager. The general manager hired the coach. They did it correctly, uh, the right sort of uh, uh, way that, it, that any team should do it. So those guys were on the same page. And, of course, tremendous hires. Uh, Shram and Landry Hall of Famers and and future Hall of Famers and just really really good at what they did. So the Cowboys just had a had had a wonderful situation there with the people that they brought in. Nobody knew it at the time, but uh, these were really really good football men. And then they set out to build a team. Yeah, without benefit of a draft, they did have an expansion draft. So they got players from other teams. And they signed some free agents and the league kicked in. George Hallis drafted Don Meredith and traded him to Dallas. Uh, and so, you know, because Hallis had heard that uh, the, they had a shot at getting Don Meredith, which would be a boon for the, this new team. So he made sure that Don Meredith wound up uh, uh, with the Cowboys. Hallis made that happen. Again, he ran the NFL no matter who was commissioner. And so, uh, you know, by hook or by crook, they, they, they found some players, guys that have been in Canada. I mean, they were not very good. They, they, they did not have a good team. Uh, they had uh, the expansion draftees, none of whom were particularly good, and then free agents, and then whoever they could find. So it was not a great group by any means. Well, no, I, my understanding is that we they were even, uh, uh, during the course of the expansion draft, they actually hadn't even uh, become the Cowboys yet. They were still being known as the Rangers uh, before that. So it seems it seems like it was uh, it was off to a shaky start. And, and, I mean, you're being charitable, I think. I mean, uh, what, what was the record that first season for the Cowboys? So let's be honest. The record the first season was zero wins, 11 losses, and a tie. I mean, they were really bad. And uh, they just... They, they, the only thing they had going for them as they battled the Texans for attention of the fans was that they were, they brought great teams to town, the Cleveland Browns and New York Giants. They bring these legendary teams to town. People, you could come see them play, but all they did was just walk over the Cowboys. So, uh, yeah, they were just completely, completely overmatched. And, uh, Landry was all in. I mean, he, he, uh, I'm sure there were times when he thought, what in the world? He, he'd come from the New York Giants, who were really good, and and now here he was. It was in his hometown, but uh, not a good team. But, yeah, no, there there is no way to paint them as, as anything other than just a horrendous team, a winless team. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, the the quarterback, Don Marathon, they also had Eddie LeBaron, who they they'd, uh, traded for. Uh, from the Redskins, a veteran guy who was sort of the main quarterback that first year. So it was, and he was five foot seven. He was a good little quarterback, but uh, a short guy. And and they passed the ball all right. They moved the ball okay sometimes, but uh, there were some 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 terrific beatings that they took sometimes in front of the home fans. Well, so let's characterize uh, their uh, both of these teams uh, during the course of the 1960 season because. 
Uh, it looks like the Cowboys had the early advantage by having uh, the first two of their home games at the Cotton Bowl. But I actually think, if I'm not mistaken, that the Texans had a preseason game prior to that in the, in the Cotton Bowl and did quite well in, in attendance. And then uh, when uh, the Texans came back for their first uh, regular season game, it seems like they actually outdrew the Cowboys even in those first two games that the Cowboys had. I guess what I'm getting at is it feels to me in the earliest of games in the season that in the stands, the Texans were kind of winning. They were winning. Uh, of course, the Cowboys would tell you they were giving away tickets. They were not selling tickets, and that, I think, was true to some degree. Lamar, this is a new product, the AFL, a new team. You're not bringing the Cleveland Browns to town. You're bringing the Boston Patriots, and people are like, well, what is that? And how much can you possibly charge and to get people to buy a ticket to come see this? And the answer was you couldn't. So they they had to they gave away a lot of tickets. Lamar resorted to all sorts of just stunts. That that's the best thing. He had Barber Day, where he if you were showed up in a barber smock, you got in uh, because he wanted people talking about the team in barber shops. Probably the worst promotional idea in history. But he he did that. They. They set tickets loose in balloons set over the city. Uh, they would give them away at a car wash. They, they just anything, anything they could do. Uh, they had, they said they were going to have an exploding scoreboard and try to get fans to come. And it was really just a line of mortar shells outside the, the cotton bowl. And they just, they just set them off and, uh, you know, scared everybody. Uh, so, uh, I don't think anybody thought it was particularly exciting. So Lamar was just trying anything he could and giving away a lot of tickets. So, but the team was better. Uh, he had Abner Haynes running around was the MVP in the league and, and just a terrific running back and a playmaker. And they weren't playing the Cleveland Browns. They were playing these other expand, basically all new teams in the AFL. And so the Texans had a winning record that first year. They didn't they didn't win the league, but they had a winning record. They played competitive games. There was a lot of scoring, not much defense, and it was exciting football. And um, one day, Landry and, and Gil Brandt, who was the scouting guy that they had found, uh, went out to one of those Texans games, and they were a little discouraged by what they saw. Cause the NFL thought the AFL was going to be just a nothing product. And, well, it wasn't bad. It was right off the bat pretty interesting and exciting and and uh, the Texans were an example of that. So people were coming, and whether they're paying, I don't know. But uh, they were there. There were people in the seats more at the Texans games than the Cowboy games. That barber story, by the way, is is interesting because uh, diligent listeners to this little podcast will remember our two conversations uh, around the uh, NHL California slash Oakland slash uh, they changed their names so many times Ca- uh, Golden Seals, and apparently Charlie Finley. When he got ownership of that team, actually initiated the same promotional idea, that barbershop idea for Barber Night. And again, I I don't know, maybe who knows how he came up with this idea or whatever that sort of with the original genesis of that. But the the idea, strangely, was that, you know, you go to a barbershop, people start talking about it and, you know, they get some referrals and, and they'll tell two friends and so on and so on. But again, interesting stories. That's why we kind of go into this. Well, OK, so, but so. Um, give us an assessment, I guess, <clears throat> of 
uh, of this sort of first year, right, uh, from an NFL and an AFL perspective, right? Because, I mean, you hint, you said it before, right? This we, We're talking about a market that did not have pro football, obviously deep and rich in a state, deep and rich in certainly college football, absolutely high school football, right? And getting its first real taste, although Houston obviously had an AFL franchise as well, uh, you know, doubling up when no teams existed the year before. What do you think from your research and and, and your writing uh, was the sort of postmortem on this sort of first season? Obviously, the Cowboys didn't win a game. Uh, the the uh, Texans were competitive. They finished second in their division, although no playoffs. Uh, what do you think the initial assessment was after the first season about how it was going in this uh, in this market? And frankly, maybe the fans and the media, too, in this market. Well, I think um, there was a, a little bit of a uh, certainly the Cowboys were not doing well. There, there, there was there was no way to no way around that. Uh, the the only thing the Cowboys had going for them was they had a, a, a smart owner with a with a, who was patient and had a lot of money, and he'd hired a good general manager and a good coach, and so that's all they had going. The team was bad. And there was no way to look at that and say, this is going well. Uh, they, they just, uh, you know, losing just casts a pall on everything around it. And that was definitely the case. So they were, they, there was no way. I think the media uh, was sort of pulling for the underdog a little bit. I mean, here come the Texans with more interesting players, including Abner Haynes. And so it was just more fun. So, uh, uh, you know, uh, the, 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 it wasn't clear. I think everybody knew that there was no room in this market for two teams. There just wasn't going to be. Uh, there were two in New York and 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 uh, in Southern California, but the not in Dallas wasn't was not a big enough market at that point. And so uh, uh, it was never just explicitly said one will leave town. But uh, uh, I do think that it, based strictly on the first year, it looked like the Texans were definitely more likely uh, to, to plant uh, roots that would grow and that they could stay. Uh, you know, the Cowboys definitely look, were a struggling franchise that first year. And the Texans and the AFL, um, how about uh, a television, right? Because the AFL had sort of this uh, brand new uh, television contract, right, which ensured, I mean, um, was television helpful or a non-factor or maybe even a hindrance uh, in either of these two franchises, uh, you know, uh, first years? Well, I, I think both the games were the road games were televised. And so you could watch the games. Um, I think it helped the Texans. I think it helped the AFL. It, it just leveled the playing field a little bit. I mean, the NFL, the caliber play in the NFL was better. The teams were better. And uh, there was uh, the league had been in existence for 40 years at that point. However, uh, when you just have uh, uh, put games on Sunday afternoon, it, you couldn't really tell. Uh, you know, it sort of leveled the playing field a little bit. Uh, well, here are the Cowboys on one week, and then the Texans are on the next week. Well, well, who's on this Sunday? You know, you could watch both of them. It seemed uh, sort of equal. And so I think there was just different football television programming. And I, I think that helped with the public at large. I sort of encouraging them to think of the AFL and the Texans as a legitimate enterprise, which they weren't. I mean, when they, when they first started, they were, they were fledgling and, and, and the Cowboys are of, of the established league. But uh, I think television helped people think, well, let's look, it looks the same to me. 
So uh, it helped the widespread public that television attracted. It helped uh, sort of legitimize uh, the new product. So when does the uh, when is the, uh, the 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 rumblings of Dallas kind of or the the recognition I guess of this sort of two teams in this market won't cut it kind of really start to sink in and maybe give us some hint of the roots of sort of what winds up happening circa after the 63 season when uh, the Texans kind of decamp for another market because the, you know, again, in hindsight, 2020, right? The Cowboys, you know, even, even in 62 and 63, while there was improvement, uh, you know, frankly, don't, I mean, you're kind of hinting at it now too, in, in what you're sort of saying, they don't seem to be the strongest of the two franchises. And arguably you could make the case of like, well, maybe why, why didn't the Texans wind up becoming the eventual victors, I guess, in getting this market going forward? Well, what happened was this, um, really to me, it comes down to ownership. It comes down to Clint Murkison, uh, you know, and the, the fact that the NFL was established, the Cowboys were the inferior product a lot was made in the you talk about what was in the media. You know, who would win if they played? They never played. The Texans firmly believed they would have beaten the team from the from the established NFL. And, and Landry told me years later, that's probably correct. Uh, they probably would have beaten us. Uh, but well, well, uh, hold so, on. Before, before you go off of that, though, for a second, even though the Texans won the championship in their third season in Dallas of the AFL. Yeah. Yes, That's how well, arrogant they were, the NFL. Oh, the NFL was totally arrogant. And and so, but what happened was Clint Murkison just said, we're, we're, he, we're the NFL. We're staying. The New York Giants, we're playing the New York Giants home and home. We're playing the Cleveland Browns. Yes, we stink. We're going to figure this out. We've got Don Meredith. You know, we're starting to, we'll, we'll keep drafting players. We are just going to keep going. The level of commitment and patience from ownership was the key thing because he just didn't blink. I mean, this is a stare off basically. And he never blinked, even though there's plenty of reason to blink. He just said, well, we're going to make this work. I got all the money in the world and we're going to make it work. We're the NFL. And uh, if the Texans can do whatever they want, if they want to stay, we'll have two teams. Uh, but we're, we're going to have one team and it's going to be my team. And he just never wavered from that. And L- Lamar blinked. I mean, that, that, that's all you can say. Yeah, he had a, had a better team, and, but he was from a newer league. And he didn't see – he looked at it from the global perspective, the, the league. He said, this league needs success stories. You know, we're two years in now, three years in now. We've had some decent – Things happen. We've we've got our feet on the ground, but we need to start succeeding. We're never going to just own a market. We're never going to own this market. So there's another team here, and Clint's not leaving. <laughs> I mean, it's just he's not leaving. And so I think Lamar, being a realist, said we got to find somewhere else. We just I, I hate it. It's my hometown, and we've we've done this, and we've attracted some fans. But for the good of the league, we have to find a market where we can succeed. And he did that, uh, but uh, you know, to his dismay, that he had to leave his hometown, uh, and to the dismay of the the players and the coaches and everybody, uh, to cede uh, Dallas to the Cowboys. But there, there is no doubt that where it came from was the ownership of the Cowboys and uh, saying we, we're you know we're not going to lose this war period. And so that that was the deciding 
uh, element in this war. So can you can you give us any insight as to how this uh, sort of decision on Hunt's and the Texans management's front sort of came about? Because in the midst of what ultimately became their final season in Dallas and then moving to Kansas City for the 63 season. Uh, right, 62 was the last season, right. Correct. And so, but 62 was the ultimate championship season, right, for this franchise, uh, actually, and beating Houston, yeah. by the way, and, and maybe underlying how much the AFL had made progress in the whole state of Texas, for that matter. Um, can you maybe give us a sense of how 62 unfolded a bit and how, in the midst of a very successful on-field season, the the roots of maybe making that change sort of happen and maybe how that change ultimately at the end of the season happened to go to Kansas City? Well, he, I think he, he thought uh, early on, uh, he, he had thought long before the decision was made, and uh, he thought about it during the 62 season, kept it very quiet, explored the idea, whether in his head or, or, or with physical trips to different places, uh, New Orleans, uh, Miami, Atlanta. I mean, he, lo- he looked all over uh, the place and in Kansas City. Uh, he had friends, in the, he had friends in the oil business in uh, New Orleans who told him, you, you, you're too straight laced to, to move, to have, to own a, a football team in New Orleans and too much in New Orleans, too much of the business, uh, is, uh, it operates under the table. That's not the place for you. Uh, and so these are all markets that within a few years had pro football. Uh, but he wound up going to Kansas city. The, the, the mayor there really recruited him and put on a big show and, and, and a firm commitment of season ticket sales. And they were just dying for professional sports, a major league professional sport, like so many other markets in the United States in the early 1960s. And he picked the right place. So uh, it just made sense to him uh, that, that they could, you know, move, move up whatever many hundred miles it was and still succeed. And then, and what he, uh, worried about or hoped would happen. We're going to take over a market did happen. He created a much stronger franchise by leaving Dallas and uh, became one of the key NFL fran- I mean, AFL franchises. And, uh, and, and so they, they lost the, the battle of Dallas, uh, by moving, but, uh, in, in some respects they won the war. I mean, the AFL was strong enough that uh, the NFL had to submit and merge with them, which is the ultimate capitulation. And so uh, the NFL, I think when this started out, could not believe that that could happen, but it did. And uh, the move to Kansas City uh, created, I mean, it's a, it's a series of, of small moves enabled the AFL to do that. And the move to Kansas City created a strong franchise, very strong franchise. So that was uh, one of the key moves. At what point did it become known to the public and maybe to the, or to the players or whatever that uh, that the the Texans were going to leave Dallas was it during the playoffs or was it during the season at all or was it only after the championship game uh, you know how and how much of this was sort of orchestrated would you say to maybe not be known uh, at at those points in time it wasn't it was not known. Uh, it was not known. I mean, they, they thought, oh, well, you know, uh, the Texans, the, the 1962 championship game was tremendous event and, you know, overtime, double overtime. And uh, they, they came back 
uh, flew back from they defeated Houston in double overtime, and they come back and they're greeted at the airport in Dallas. You know, thousands of fans clamoring for this team and uh, cheering their heroes. The great airport valedictory, you know, one of those great scenes in sports. And Lamar already knew that it that it was going to happen, but uh, 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 he still wanted to win the game. Uh, but uh, nobody knew. And so uh, it was a bombshell, without a doubt. Well, I mean, that championship game was something, right? It was on ABC. Uh, the uh, Texans beat the Oilers by a field goal. It was the longest game, I think, maybe even still. Went through two overtimes. Um, you know, I, an amazing uh, uh, championship uh, game. And I, I guess bittersweet, right? Uh, I, I'm just I'm really curious to know how much, and not having the benefit of that, that cha- the, uh, the game tape, uh, of you know what people knew or didn't know about this franchise, uh, given well, arguably a bittersweet championship season, and you know I I'm wondering what uh, you know Lamar Hunt uh, you know was like uh, in the uh, you know in the the minutes after winning that championship, champagne doused, no doubt. Uh, you know, it's, yeah. it's almost feels like it's, uh, you know, I guess there's two ways to look at it. One is like, you know, wow, I've got a championship team that's now going to really hit Kansas City running when we get there. Uh, versus, you know, it almost feels like a, a bit of a, a hollow victory, right? And that uh, here's the championship team, but uh, they're not going to be around anymore in Dallas. I guess Lamar was just very, very pragmatic. And, and it was like, well, we're still going to have a team. And uh, this is good for the league, uh, great for the league. I mean, in many respects, that is the day that the AFL uh, sort of achieved legitimacy at a huge television audience. I mean, the, the greatest game ever played for the NFL is that Colts Giants 58 championship game, but the 62 championship game for the AFL was similar. It doesn't get the same attention, but there was a snowstorm in the East and people were watching and, and it was just an incredible game. It went into overtime. It was dramatic and people saw that the AFL was playing good football. So uh, a million thoughts going through Lamar's head, no doubt. Uh, good for the league, but he, he also knew, uh, this is, you know, I'm, I am, this is happening. We're going to, uh, this team will not defend its title in Dallas. So that's sad. Uh, but he wanted to win the game too. So win the game, good for the league, some positives, some negatives, uh, uh, no doubt, a, a highly emotional day for him. But, uh, uh, you know, uh, I guess made easier by the fact that they won and uh, that he had a good team on his hands. So uh, uh, it was too bad that they were going to move. But uh, I think he, you know, he had made up his mind. He had seen what he had to do and, and there was no doubt where he was headed. So what came out, what comes out of all this? Obviously, the, the team that sort of uh, succeeds or, or winds up uh, staying in Dallas, obviously, uh, becoming more uh, legendary by the season and by the end of the decade, the Cowboys, uh, and then some. Uh, and the Texans then making their move to Kansas City itself, not necessarily a guaranteed success of a market, but clearly uh, played very well by Hunt and team to uh, generate interest and boosterism for a team that uh, itself winds up becoming not only an AFL stalwart with Stram and company, but an NFL one at that. Um, what, what do you think sort of, uh, the lessons and, or, you know, comically or, or otherwise sort of fr- from this sort of battle, uh, cause it seems like if I'm a football fan in Dallas in the early 1960s, it's, 
it's kind of heaven, right? Because I get two professional football franchises where there were none before. Uh, I get sort of to see the best of a fledgling league, which is, you know, sort of younger and more exciting and, and a little bit more, uh, you know, opportunistic with, you know, the NFL's uh, staunch uh, best teams, albeit not with the team uh, in my market that's uh, doing well, but at least I can see some of the best players. Um uh, it couldn't last, right? But uh, what do you, you know, what do you sort of make out of uh, out of this this effort? It seems like maybe both sides kind of won in some respects. Both sides did win. I mean, this this uh, in the early '60s, yes, it was heaven in the sense that there were two teams there. Uh, although I will say, most people in Dallas picked one uh, to root for. They didn't go to both the games of both teams. They sort of picked one over the other. You're either a Texans fan or a Cowboy fan. My family picked the Cowboys. Uh, my grandfather was an establishment guy, and he was going to go with the established league, not the upstart. So um, that's that sort of uh, governed my rooting interest. And uh, other people had different approaches. You know, it was the '60s. Maybe they wanted they were they. You know, if you were looking for the upstart, the, the radical, you know, that was the AFL. You can have any reason you want to pull for either one of the teams. But, uh, yeah, it was fun. The teams weren't – I mean, it, it, the the games – I mean, the teams were not particularly great, uh, albeit, uh, you know, the, that last year the Texans didn't win the title. Uh, but uh, by the end of that decade – I mean, in the early 60s, they're neither drawing very large crowds. By the end of the decade, they're playing to full stadiums. The Cowboys in Dallas, the Texans as the Chiefs in Kansas City, they are at the top of the sport. Uh, that you know the Chiefs played in Super Bowl one. They won Super Bowl four. Uh, the Cowboys won Super Bowl five, uh, and or, or lost five but won six. Uh, so uh, two outstanding franchises uh, started. It just so happened that two outstanding franchises started in in the same town in 1960. And I guess the 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 moral of the story is that uh, uh, the uh, the appetite for pro football in the United States in the early 1960s was just insatiable. Uh, it was a perfect storm, the perfect time to start bringing teams into existence. Games were on TV. The sport was evolving. Uh, there were any number of ways you could go. It was a, it was a golden era in many respects. And so uh, it was just these two teams, these two franchises, benefited from that and so it is no doubt both franchises are winners i mean lamar he in in, in technical terms he lost the battle of dallas when he moved but he wound up winning uh, you know he won a super bowl before the cowboys did and and the cowboys of course have gone on to be you know, the most most uh, valuable sports franchise in in the world uh, according to those Forbes valuations, uh, just successful beyond anyone's wildest imaginations. So uh, both have succeeded, and it just shows you, uh, uh, you know, as in the 60s where we saw football sort of surpass baseball, I think, as the national pastime. You can see it uh, through the stories of these two teams. Yeah, it almost seems like a microcosm of uh, the the Big Bang, if you will, of pro football in the 60s. Um, and I guess, uh, again, through hindsight, right, uh, you wonder the, the people, I, I'm not from Dallas, uh, you know, and I didn't grow up there, certainly, but, uh, you know, it, it almost feels like an embarrassment of riches 
you know, during those first uh, three seasons uh, between these two clubs, even though neither were, um, you know, truly successful at a, at a grand scale, aside from obviously the championship that the Texans won in 62 on the field. Uh, it's amazing to look back on that time uh, in hindsight, knowing uh, what then became the probably the most successful professional sports merger later in the decade, uh, as well as two teams that uh, continue to uh, be uh, substantially uh, historic and uh, and well rooted in the NFL. Yes, and, and a key aspect of it is that the guy on the one side and the AFL side of this was the guy who started the league. Uh, he always looked at it from the league perspective. That's why he moved. So it was the league perspective. So if it'd just been another owner, I don't know, maybe he would have stuck it out. Uh, but he's, he definitely had the larger perspective in mind. And that was a key part of it. Uh, and uh, he just deserves unbelievable credit. He's really the star of the story, if you ask me. Uh, yes, he moved the team, but... I mean, he was the one that had the idea of taking on the NFL and challenging it. His, his instincts were just dead on right. And uh, he was right that Dallas was right for pro football. It wasn't right for two teams, but it was right for one. And uh, so his instincts were just correct. And he brought it to life with uh, just a sort of a earnest uh, sort of level headedness that is just uh, Lamar Hunt is just a huge figure in the history of American sports. And, uh, you know, uh, he may be lost a little bit in history's mists now, but that's uh, not as it should be because he, it's, it was his, his sort of vision that, that, that led to all of this. And I just, you just can't credit him enough. All right. Uh, as uh, my, here's my last question, sort of more on the, the process by which you put this uh, this story uh, together. Uh, give us uh, give our audience a sense of sort of how you sort of went about it and maybe, uh, you know, some of the original uh, players, if you will, uh, uh, both on the field and off the field on, um, you know, how did you how did you stitch the narrative together? It seems somewhat obvious, but then, you know, you're talking about some major themes here that, uh, you know, probably at the time were not so obvious. Well, uh, I, as I said, I, I had wrote uh, I had written a book in the '90s, uh, Cotton Bowl Days, uh, on my story growing up as a cowboy fan. There was one chapter in there on the Texans. I mean, we and I sort of joked about it because, uh, as I wrote, when my grandfather picked the Cowboys, uh, the, there was a Texans blackout in my family. You know, we didn't follow the Texans. I, I knew a little bit about them, but uh, we were cowboy people, so. Uh, I did one chapter in my book, and so here I was uh, 15 to 18 years later looking for another subject for a book, and uh, very honestly, uh, like Lamar, the light bulb just came on one day. I, uh, you know, I said, oh my gosh, you know, this story that I devoted one chapter to in my earlier book could be expanded upon, really deserves a much larger canvas. And so uh, it just it just came to me. I said, there's so much more here, and especially because it's such a distillation of the AFL-NFL rivalry. that uh, So I, I I just went to town with it. I interviewed a, a, anybody I could that was still alive. Uh, you know, many many of them were dead. Some of the interviews I actually uh, used in uh, Cotton Bowl days. Uh, the, the, I mean, the ones from Cotton Bowl days. I interviewed Tom Landry. He had passed away uh, by the time uh, I wrote this book, but I'd interviewed him 
uh, for Cotton Bowl days. And uh, so I had an uh, interview with Tom Landry on tape, Tech Schramm, all these people in which they covered this stuff because I wrote about it before. So I had a great head start there. And I just went back to as many people as I could, especially the Texans. I had not interviewed any of those guys. Found just a bunch of the players, uh, you know, Chris Burford and, and, and Jack Spikes and Lenny Dawson. And, of course, Abner Hain is, is still alive. Just an incredible character. He's a raconteur, uh, a great storyteller, and just a wonderful person. And I just spent hours with Abner, and he was telling all these stories. So I found on that side of this rivalry just one great character after the other and just made for very rich storytelling, which is always what I'm looking for with any of my books. Well, all righty then. There's uh, our, uh, our very interesting conversation with uh, John Eisenberg. Uh, and uh, it's uh, interesting stuff, uh, especially if you grew up in Dallas uh, or maybe consider yourselves... Uh, Dallas Cowboys fan, or if you consider yourself a Kansas City Chiefs fan, uh, hell, if you even uh, consider yourself a Houston Oilers fan because of the AFL uh, and Houston and the Texans and all that stuff is uh, very much uh, in the sort of uh, the diaspora, I guess, of the history uh, that sort of came out of the uh, the adventures of the early 1960s in Dallas between both the AFL and the NFL. Of course, what transpired after uh, down the road, uh, just uh, amazing stories there. And the seeds of that, obviously embedded in uh, this story that uh, John has put together. It's called 10-Gallon War, the NFL's Cowboys, <clears throat> the AFL's Texans, excuse me, and the feud for Dallas's pro football future. Uh, it is uh, available wherever you're going to find uh, good books. Uh, it is uh, published by uh, Houghton Mifflin. Uh, of course, you can find a, a link to this book uh, on our website at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Just search up episode number 86, our conversation with John Eisenberg, and you will find a link to it. Uh, you'll also find a link to uh, some of his other books uh, that we talked about, one being The League, uh, which we're going to do a future episode on, which is sort of the early history uh, of the uh, of the NFL. Cotton Bowl Days, we'll have a, a link to that, uh, that uh, uh, book as well. And uh, again, feel free to visit us early and often again at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Not only will you find all the old episodes and the descriptions of such and the links to the stuff that we uh, sort of hint at uh, in those episodes, but you're also going to find uh, a link to our uh, our weekly newsletter, which we send out. We're happy to send that to you. So join us for that. Uh, you'll find all of our social media links there uh, at Twitter. You'll find us at Good Seats Still. On Instagram, we're at Good Seats Still Available. You'll find a link to our Facebook page. You can like us and love us or do whatever you you know might like to do there uh, as well. Uh, we thank you for all of that good stuff. And um, let's see. Uh, make sure also to uh, consider, by the way, a, a subscription to Audible because uh, uh, John Eisenberg's uh, book, 10-Gallon War, I think in some of the other stuff too, uh, are, including the league, uh, is available in audiobook form too. So you just go to audibletrial.com slash goodseats. And uh, you can uh, use that perhaps to get your free download, your free book uh, by uh, doing that, too. So there's a whole bunch of ways you can get this uh, this great stuff from John Eisenberg, as well as from us. And uh, of course, we'd like to uh, thank you for considering those and for coming to our website. And of course, we want to thank our friend Jerry Payne and all of his good pals at Podfly Productions for helping us put these uh, these pieces together every week for a great show. We enjoy uh, putting them together. I'm not sure Jerry does, but uh, hell, he gets paid for it. So uh, I don't think he's going to complain. And that's Podfly Productions. You can find them at Podfly, 
Net. Check them out and uh, give them some love too, will you? Uh, and speaking of love, we love you for listening and we appreciate it very much. And uh, we'll see you next week. So take care. And until then, ta-ta. Bye.